Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. I am very excited. I'm always excited, but I'm excited today because my co-host is someone I have never co-hosted with before. So this is very, very new for both of us. And I'm really looking forward to working with the one, the only, Kit. Oh, thank you very much, Alina. That's really kind of you. And I'm looking forward to working with you too. And I'm really looking forward to the guest that we've got today. Uh, We have Peter Green, a historian who specialises in airborne landings at Arnhem and the fates of the men captured by the Germans in the aftermath, inspired by his father's service. Captured at Arnhem is his second book, and it's about the experiences of the men in the aftermath of the battle. Peter, welcome to the show. Hi, good afternoon. Peter, we're really looking forward to this. So I think we should kind of just jump straight into these questions, however much I want to chat about this afternoon and things that we've just been talking about. But let's kick off with the first question, which well, your new book, Captured at Arnhem, it seeks to give a voice to the prisoners of war taken after the Arnhem debacle. What was your main source for all of this information? Well, mainly the questionnaires the men were meant to fill out uh, when they were released from prison. Only about a third of those people did, not because they were deliberately uh, trying to avoid them but some I think did but mainly because uh, it was not a neat procedure the release of men you know people came out at different times were released by different units in different places so it wasn't a neat system so there's about two third about a third of all these guys who were captured at various battles from Norm- Norway onwards Norway in 1940 onwards um, have questionnaires and the same applies really to men from Arnhem about a th- about a third have questionnaires. And so these are the British soldiers or is this also American troops that were captured at Arnhem, things like that? The, the questionnaires are only, that I looked at, were only the British units, the ones from 1st Airborne Division and the Glider Pilot uh, Regiment and then Fort Dorset. There's one Polish uh, questionnaire in, but I suspect although these Polish men were held in British prison camps, because that was the policy, they were obviously trying to get home. They were trying to sort out whether they were going to go home. So the Poles were treated differently. There were American questionnaires, and the questionnaires were an Anglo-American project. But I mine only look at First Airborne, so the operations around Arnhem. And what kind of issues did you encounter with the information in the questionnaires? Because I've never seen a, a POW questionnaire. I don't know what's usually included in that kind of material. Well, you would have thought it was a really wonderful source of information, and, and it, it should have been. But if you've ever produced a questionnaire about anything, you realise what is a simple question to you is not a simple question to the person filling out. So the quality of the data on the questionnaires is very variable. One example is dates. People give dates for when they were captured from before the, the operation even started. So... You know, the initial idea was, this is great, we'll be able to actually work out when men were captured, where they were on the battlefield. Well, you can't, because their dates are all completely wrong. There are some dates which are done well after the, uh, the, the war had ended. So 
dates are a bit dodgy. People's names are obviously correct. The units they're in are often confused simply because people weren't sure what unit they were to put in. It's this question of a... You ask a simple question in a questionnaire of 10 people and they'll all give you 10 different answers. So it, it's patchy information, but the lovely thing is, of course, it's information taken from a large number of people at around about the same time. So in terms of statistical analysis, it's fascinating. Peter, do you know what's really interesting? I actually thought that the Poles were the only ones to do this. So when the Germans invaded Russia in 41 and the Poles were released from all the gulags and things like that, they started doing questionnaires out there and talking about their experiences and how they were captured in 39 and how they experienced the gulags and things like that. So I'm actually really surprised to find that this was also happening on the Western Front and not just on the Eastern Front. Well, these are questionnaires, remember, from men being released from prison camp. So these are men, in this instance, who were in the Polish Independent Parachute Brigade at Arnhem. And those questionnaires were really intended to let MI9, which was the military intelligence unit that looked after prisoners of war, liaison with prison camps, because there was, through coded messages, people talking backwards and forwards between the camps and MI9 in London. So I, given that this isn't a neat and tidy process, one can imagine there's a very crowded room uh, building somewhere in Germany. Somebody says, look, you're Polish, look, they're looking after you over there. And it's not deliberately uh, unpleasant. It's just simply trying to sort this thing out. So, yes, I'd love to see more Polish questionnaires, but I suspect that the Polish government in exile, and remember you're dealing with several Polish, more two so Polish governments at this stage, wanted different information. They didn't want the information that MI9 wanted or the American equivalent wanted. And that's an interesting job, isn't it? Yes, but perhaps we ought to be looking at the landings at Nijmegen and Eindhoven too with the Americans. And it's important to remember that the sheer number of POWs taken is absolutely massive at, uh, at Arnhem and, and Market Garden. It's the greatest number of Allied prisoners since Dieppe. I think it's third in the war after the fall of Singapore and then Dieppe. Can you give us an idea of, of how the Germans were actually able to cope with this? Because bear in mind that they were, you know, under an onslaught at the moment. They were falling back into Germany. Yeah, I mean, Germany was a mess. If you want sing, this may not sound relevant, but it is relevant. The German railway system had reached the stage that it was not working properly so that they were having to derail wagons to create spaces in sidings to put things in. So it was just chaotic. However, they did cope. But as you can imagine, they coped by putting humanitarian requirements second. So, yeah, they got people from A to B. They interrogated them. They moved them to permanent camps. Uh, It it wasn't torture, but it wasn't very pleasant uh, to spend five or six days locked up in, in, in a railway wagon without proper toilet facilities, with the odd bit of bread now and again. Not very pleasant, but that's the way they coped. Um, so where, where were these prison camps? Because obviously, I mean, everyone kind of knows Starlag Luft from The Great Escape, things like that. But now we're in September 1944. Obviously, the Russians are starting to move into, into, into Poland. The, um, the Allies on the Western Front are trying to get across the Rhine. They're preparing for that push. Where are they actually housing the prisoners? Well, the, the Germans had an, a very large number of prison camps. I mean, not just military prison camps, but they're, they're obviously the, the infamous concentration camps. But they're also camps for other workers, 
we might think of them as slave laborers, and they were pretty close I think, to slave laborers. But they're camps all over Germany. The Stalag camp, Luft camps that you refer to, are all in the east because they were trying to make escape by these people the most as difficult as possible. You know, airborne air aircrew were valuable commodities as far as the Germans concerned. They didn't want aircrew escaping. So yeah, they're over in the east. Um, the, the most westerly camp that I'm aware of is one that's quite fascinating. There's a, a camp at Hadamar, which is almost on the Rhine, 30 or 40 miles west of Frankfurt, which held senior British officers. Uh, General Fortune, who was captured at Boulogne in 1940, for example, the most senior one. But they're, they're spread around. What's interesting, though, when you look at the, the Arnhem prison camps, is that men are obviously being selected to go to different camps. So officers who were not injured or go through the registration process and go to off-lag 79 near Brunswick and near Hanover. Officers who are walking wounded, so they might still need medical attention, but they're, they're not in, in plaster casts, all end up near Castle uh, down in, in central Germany, which is my father, where my father ended up. So there's, people are being selected. The same happens to other ranks. Senior and A lot of senior NCOs are split between two camps, one down in Austria uh, and one up close to the Baltic. So somebody is actually saying, hey, we need these people. But the largest number of other ranks are going to Silesia, which is where the work is. You know, the Germans are desperate for people to work in their factories, in their mines, quarries. So you're getting a large number of people sent through a camp called Stalag 4B, which is then distinct, uh, separating people out and allocating them to camps in Sudetenland and Silesia and bits of Poland. Were the, uh, the men interrogated or, and was this a uniform process? Because you mentioned that they're reducing humanitarian conditions. People are being held up in trains and things like that. Is it chaotic or do the, the Germans have a process that they follow? You have to understand that uh, National Socialist Germany believed in Darwinian evolution, which meant that there was always competition. So there was competition between the Luftwaffe and the Navy and the Navy and the Army and the SS. And that competition, that belief in competition, permeated Nazi Germany. So that actually means it isn't actually very well organised because everybody is shouting to get resources to do things and so on. Uh, On the whole, uh, it does look as if all the men captured were interviewed, in, interrogated in some shape or form. But we're back to the quality of the data. The question on the form says, were you specially interrogated? Well, unless you were there in 1944 when they were writing the questionnaire and you could say to them, what do you mean by specially? So what you get is answers on the form. No, I wasn't specially interrogated. I went through the Air Force Interrogation Centre. I was interrogated by X, Y and Z. They were still talking to me in, in, in the spring of 1945. But no, I wasn't specially interrogated. And then you get other people who just take a pencil or draw a line straight through the question. So that's, that's the difficulty. What is certainly happening is the Luftwaffe, who are in charge of the interrogation process, because in the German armed forces, it's the Luftwaffe who run airborne. So they're the ones who understand airborne warfare. They are singling out people. A lot of glider pilots are going through this uh, Luftwaffe interrogation centre, which was set up really to work out, find answers to the technology questions that were coming out of the bombing campaign. 
and why did the Allies have this amazing technology and what was going on. So glider pilots are going through there, but not all of them. So uh, it, it's a mess. But uh, And so you can't say everybody was asked the same questions. No, they're not. There's some lovely Joe, lovely comments. One man says, oh, it was very theatrical, my interrogation. Well, I'm never quite sure what he meant by that. But uh, he was a security guy in his own right in, in, in the Airborne Division, so he was used to interrogating people. But he, he just thought a little theatrical, you know. Sorry, I'm going to throw a comment in before I ask the next question. Is that all he wrote? It was a little... There was no other comment, no other line of, I don't know, it was... I'm trying to think off the top of my head. It was difficult, it was hard, it was funny, it was interesting. It was just theatrical. In in his case, and sorry, um, I, <laughs> I, I can't remember the exact quote, but he listed uh, places which the Germans had referred him to, claiming that the Allies had mistreated German prisoners at. And one of the places was the Tower of London. He, he then says it wasn't really very uh, thorough, very effective, but it's the end quite... I mean, having made his de- rather detailed comment, he said, full stop, it was rather theatrical, full stop. Well, that's, you can see the stiff upper lip in that, can't you, as well? I, I get stiff upper lip in it. It's rather theatrical, chaps, you know. But, yeah, there's examples of, that he's giving of, of the kind of questionnaire. But he was responding to, to questions from the Germans suggesting that the Allies mistreated German prisoners and then, say, gave a list of places, one of which was the Tower of London. I don't really think German prisoners were in ball and chains in the cellars, but uh, that was the impression. He's mentioned concentration camps, forced labour. We all know how that went down, or if you don't, People should go and read a book. But we're going to be talking about prisoners of war camps in this context. I want to know a little bit more before, obviously, we get to breaking the Geneva Convention, because we can come to that. What was it like and what were the conditions like before the Geneva Convention broke? Do we know much about that? I think the the Germans, on the whole, stuck to the Geneva Convention with British and American prisoners. What um, you will find in their responses, the, the questionnaire responses, there are lots of references to ill treatment of concentration camp workers if they were working alongside them or they would see them on the road marching to and from work. So a lot of the men are well aware the conditions in Germany, uh, bad though they might be for them because they were short of food and they were cold, they weren't being mistreated deliberately. All of Germany was cold and short of food because there was no fuel and, there was, and the food was short. But they were well aware that they were far better off than other people. Um, refer- there are references to the way German female political prisoners were treated and, and that they had got very few clothes, just simple shifts and things, and they were expected to work in, 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 in appalling conditions. But the men were not treated. You, you shouldn't think that the men were treated like that. First of all, the Geneva Convention insisted that officers didn't work. It separated officers from other ranks. Uh, off it, other ranks, if you were a, um, an NCO, you had the choice, in theory, of not working. But if you didn't work, you weren't necessarily going to get as much food as people who did. And the commandant might not like you very much, so you might be endlessly on parade. But other ranks would be expected to work. And then you depend. Then what happens, of course, is the conditions depend on the employer. So if you've got a... a, a a carpet factory in eastern Germany, which has got, on the whole, 
civilized people running it, conditions won't be too bad. Uh, if you're on a farm, you might even get to know people on the farm and become relatively friendly. Other conditions, though, would be appalling. So you would be working in a, in a mine at all hours. Um, you're working repairing railway lines after after bombing. There's a lot of talk of um, repairing sewers and, and helping bury bodies after Dresden. So it's, as ever, a mixed bag here. None of it is wonderful. All of it is awful, but there are different degrees of awfulness. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Let's talk about escape attempts, because we know, obviously, that allies almost considered it a, a sport, a game to try and escape, but also a necessity. And we know at this point in the war, the Germans were had a shoot-to-kill order. They were willing to kill people who were trying to escape. So were there instances of escape attempts from the moment of capture right up to arriving at the camp? There, there were two, two times. The, the training that most men went through emphasised, British training, emphasised... The best time to escape is when you've just been captured in the chaos, you know, on the edge of a battlefield. And there are men who talk about, well, I jumped in a slit trench and waited till they marched that lot away. Uh, and then when I stuck my head up over the parapet, somebody else arrested, you know, captured me. But there are examples of that. But remember, these are questionnaires of people who were captured. So even though they might have made attempts to escape, if they did escape, they they either went into the underground or got back across the part the prior uh, the Rhine with operation operation Berlin so you are dealing with people who failed once they're back in camps in the in the main camps having been recorded preliminary interrogation whatever so once you're in your permanent camp yes you then found that the British officer who's in charge of the prisoners who's there if you like that shop steward father of the chapel in media terms the emphasis was don't be silly, don't escape, because the Germans, as you say, are likely to shoot you if you're not careful. Uh, you've had all the horrors of the Great Escape, uh, so don't escape. That didn't stop people, but a lot of, uh, of camps, the, the rule was don't escape now, for heaven's sakes. The biggest number of escapes you see in the questionnaires, though, are people after they've left the camp. So uh, we talk about camp evacuations. The Germans would move prisoners away from front lines, so not just away from the Russians, marching them west towards the Americans. You have men marched west away from the Americans towards the Russians as Germany shrank. And in those conditions, yes, a lot of people did escape. There's one wonderful example where two guys just crawled into a drain after a lunchtime stop uh, and waited for the group to march away. Uh, and yeah, eventually got back via the Americans uh, to freedom. And there must have been lots of that. 
you just hide behind a tree and wait. And if you're lucky, the guard doesn't see you and they all march off and you're then left in the middle of heaven knows where with no escape kit. But you can hear rumble of guns in either to the east or the west and, you know, that's, that's where you go. Mentioning the guards, uh, by 1944, as we said, the Germans are getting desperate and we've said already they're starting to push humanitarian things. They're starting to ignore certain elements of the Geneva Convention. Are the guards brutal? And, you know, are they forcing the POWs to do things? I think the, 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 the dominant idea about guards at this stage is they're elderly, they have bad feet, they may have stomach diseases, illnesses, so they can't really camp. You're dealing with, you know, I don't know what, the equivalent of territorial art. Well, you're dealing with the equivalent of Dad's army, but without uh, perhaps some of the efficiency of uh, our Dad's army. So it's not so much that they are brutal, they are poor soldiers, very poor soldiers. There's one example, it's not in the questionnaires, but there's an example I know of where a march eastwards, away from the Americans, towards the Russians, one of the guards at a meeting that they'd had with it, with his commandant and everybody else, said, oh, look, why are we doing this? Why don't we just shoot them and go home? And the commandant said, it's the time for that's long gone. We're not going to do that. Now, whether that was a genuine story, or you can imagine at a staff meeting, somebody gets bored with it and says, oh, let's just shoot them and go home. He doesn't actually mean it, you know. It, it was in a description given by another German, and it was not suggested that this was likely to have been the opinion of everybody. Kolditz is a camp that many of us, well, hopefully many of our listeners are familiar with. If you're not, go back a few podcast episodes where we talk about it with Ben McIntyre. But for those of us who do know Kolditz, camps like that, for example, are for the fortresses, and everybody has to try and escape, use forms of sabotage, are there many instances of things that would have happened at Colditz in these prisoners of war camps? Well, remember that Colditz had held men who had been in prison camp for a long time, had been prisoners for a lot longer. I mean, men captured as Arnhem are going to be released within eight to nine months, first of all. So you'd have to work pretty hard to get yourself noticed as being an inveterate escaper and pushed to Colditz. Um, there's a camp called um, at Spangenberg, off Lag 9A-H, which is another castle on a hilltop. And at this stage, I say, because there is this in, uh, diktat from MI9 in London, do not escape, try not to escape, you don't get these stories. You get stories of people being uh, annoying to the Germans. Uh, I know in my father's camp, for example, he always recounted um, the commandant getting them all out on parade and saying, look, you've had your fun, guys. Can you give the Gestapo officer his hat back, please? So you get that kind of schoolboy, let's take the mick out of the Germans. But nothing else, because by now it would have been almost suicide to try and mass escapes and so on. Peter, we've talked very generally, but as we mentioned at the start of this episode, the reason that you started looking into this was your own father's experiences, and you've mentioned him throughout. Can you tell us a little bit about your father and where did he serve, what rank he was, and what his experience was during the war? Oh, gosh, that's a difficult one to start with. We like he... the difficult questions, Peter. <laughs> he, well, I'm just trying to marshal thought. He was a, a, a platoon commander in uh, First Border. First Border were air landing brigade an airborne division consists or an airborne division at the time consisted of parachute brigades that's three battalions of parachutists so there's two 
brigades like that. So you've got six battalions of paratroops and a, paratro- a glider-borne brigade of uh, three battalions. The advantage of a glider over paratroops is that the unit is landed co- in a cohesive group. You've got, in, in the British sense, around 30 men can come out of a glider and, and fight immediately. You haven't got them spread out across several fields trying to find their equipment and trying to get rid of their paratroops, parachutes. So that gliders, I suppose, really deliver everybody together like you would nowadays imagine a helicopter does. They're also quieter because they've been released a long way away from where they're going to land. So you don't realise they've landed. I mean, if you think of the Pegasus Bridge example, German guards said, oh, we've heard a strange noise. What was that? You didn't know what it was. So he was a platoon commander on border. By the time the battle ended, they were in Oosterbeck on the, the west in Woodland. And by the time the battle ended, he was the only mobile officer in his company. Yeah, it's probably worth mentioning to people who aren't too familiar with the Battle of, uh, of, of Arnhem, particularly in Martin Garden. So the, the main landing areas were at Oosterbeck, um, around where the Bilderberg Hotel, I think, it now is in Oosterbeck. And then they had to march several miles to Arnhem and several of them got caught up, I think, by a panzer ambush almost immediately. Yeah, the landing areas are about nine miles from the bridge. And the original plan was uh, that they'd all land, uh, they'd end up with a brigade on the bridge, and then the perimeter around where my father was over to the west, to the north, the south, was the river. It was nine miles away. Unfortunately, yeah, there were two panzer divisions regrouping, but don't think of them as sitting there with their tanks. They'd sent a lot of their tanks back. They were just uh, trying to work out where they could get replacement men. The key thing was the moment anybody landed, a German with a gun somewhere started fighting them. And and that's the great thing that caused the problems at Arnhem, that people immediately reacted against it. Uh, and it by the, We were not, as a, uh, the British side was not as good at finding ways round relatively small roadblocks initially to the bridge. I mean, Frost got to the bridge with men, but others didn't. So, yeah, my father was over in the west, which is where they were meant to be, in Woodland. He was injured on many occasions because, if you imagine, you're in trenches in Woodland. Mortar bombs are hitting the trees above you and exploding, so you've got air bursts all the time. They didn't get the message that the division was retreating across the Rhine, and that was because the man who was meant to take the message back, who met my father sometime in 1990 and apologised to went came out of the headquarters building with a message to them to say this is what you're meant to do and a, a, a lot a more than normal amount of mortar bombs exploded he decided he wasn't going out in that and he, i don't blame him he was convinced that the company would have been all annihilated so the message no, it never arrived i'd love to have been at the meeting actually where they, where they had a regimental reunion where the guy came up to my father and said i'm sorry i didn't send you the message i <laughs> Be nice to be able to fly on the wall at that moment. That would be very unfortunate. And obviously, you mentioned this sort of operation going across the run. You sort of guys, where have you gone? Incredibly, that's actually, that's actually very interesting because he, he, the other the interesting story is that there was a lot of artillery barrage from the British army the other side of the Rhine just to create diversion, stop the Germans intervening. And for father, that meant oh, good reinforcements are arriving. He interpreted it, and most of them did. Then. The way around. And it's only when dawn broke, and as he said, Peter, there were Germans walking around on my position. <laughs> he realised things had gone wrong. 
And you're uh, so upset. <laughs> they hadn't asked permission. <laughs> I bet. You've mentioned some of his experiences, obviously, when he was captured in, in the POW camps and things like that. Do you have personal favourite stories, either from your father or other prisoners, uh, during these, these camps and the, in these captivities? Well, I think the, the one I've mentioned already, where they managed to steal the Gestapo. A Gestapo group came in to interpret, interrogate somebody or other. Uh, remember, it's a camp for, with some men in that camp had been in there, so not necessarily in that camp, but had been prisoners since 1940. Yeah, I mean, so they st- that's something incredibly difficult to imagine. I mean, we all went slightly stir crazy with COVID, and that was only a year and a half. Being in prison from 1940 to essentially early 1945 is an incredibly difficult thing for, for someone who's, you know, during the war, especially it, watching what's happening. It is, especially if you're captured in Norway in 1940. There was a man in the camp with father, they, they, they seemed to have been friends. He was introduced to Hitler in 1940 as part of Hitler's peace offensive to say, we shouldn't be fighting with you, you're, you know, you're, you're really Germans like us. So you went into the back in 1940, and, and it wouldn't have been until about 1942 that you could see any hope that Britain might win. It, you went in with a... Well, there wasn't a, there wasn't a time pre, uh, limit to your sentence. You could have been in there forever. We've, we've mentioned the experiences and obviously things collapsing. When are the prisoners actually released and liberated? Is it actually in May 1945 and the end of the war? Was it earlier? Do they have to stay in the camps? It, it's... It's at different times. So the camp at Hadamar, they were evacuated, but released sometime in, in, in late March. Uh, other people aren't released un, until even May time, because it depends where they are. It depends how quickly the British and American troops are moving westwards or the Russians are moving eastwards. Uh, so it's not a neat process at all. Falingbos, our flag uh, 79, for example, near Brunswick, was was liberated in the sense that it was no longer under German control. And it took several days for men to be taken from that and repatriated back to the UK. So our Flag 79 has some men who filled out questionnaires because by the time they were released, the system was up and running properly. Some of the early men aren't. So again, uh, I in my father's camp, he filled out a questionnaire. They were liberated on Friday the 13th of April. Other men were liberated at Easter. They don't have questionnaires. And and there are, for example, John Frost doesn't have a questionnaire. Now, that's you wouldn't would have thought that Colonel Frost would have filled out the questionnaire or whatever else. Uh, he doesn't. He was in hospital at the time. They were uh, liberated by a different American unit. Similarly, an amazing guy called Sergeant Major Lord, ex-guards, para-regiment man who instilled discipline in, in camp, a camp that was starting to fall apart seems almost. He hasn't got a, a questionnaire, and if anybody was going to fill out a questionnaire, Sergeant Lord would, I suspect Sergeant Lord would have found somebody to write it out for him, you know, a secretary. So it depends on the process. It's a chaotic process. Germany's collapsing. So, you know, a, a, an American jeep with a couple of guys in turns a corner and finds us 300 British prisoners of war sitting by the road wondering what's happening. You know, it's not a neat process. I mean, it's it's a staggering thing to happen. And especially for a historian coming into this and trying to understand the process through documents alone, because obviously we are, we're now looking at 80 years since that happened. It must be incredibly difficult for you. So um, what's the process for you as a historian tackling a subject like this? It's. I think the, the thing I found most useful in this is this gives 
you the, the work with the questionnaires gives you an overview of everything. Otherwise, you're reliant on people's biographies and autobiographies, and you're never sure whether you're looking at an extreme example or the, the mean example. Where does this fit? So what this does, it does give you an overview. And yes, there were some very unpleasant experiences. People had to be in prisons of war. Others, uh, less so. So this gives you that overview, but you do need to understand you're talking about people here. These are not just numbers. This is not a statistical exercise. And in some cases, I talked about, were you specially interrogated? And, and people would judge what special meant. And the same applies here. Did you have an unpleasant time? No. You know, it, unpleasant to you might be different from me. You know, to me, it might be, well, I didn't even notice it. You, this is the difficulty. If you've got that context that this provides, you can then start to fit the individual bits in. But it's also useful to know what's going on at the time because it isn't a vacuum. There, uh, there's a long period, for example, where American troops just stop advancing eastwards because they're waiting for other things to get come into line to get neat and move on. So you might be puzzled as to why this camp is liberated on this day and the one that's very close to it is liberated 10 days later. Well, that's because delay differences in, in advancing, uh, the, the Allies advancing. Peter, I want to thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. I found it really interesting and especially you used your family experiences and I do the same and I've used that in articles and things that I've written in the past. So I think that's absolutely beautiful that you used your father's experience to write this book. Can you just remind our listeners the name of your book? It's called Captured in Arnhem. It's men's personal accounts of their experience because the question is, that's what they were written in. It wasn't a yes, no answer. You wrote down things so this is your own experience it's published by pen and sword it's very thick because it's the great strength i think of the book is it makes available all these questionnaires to other people trying to get these questionnaires out of queue is a very difficult task and thankfully i had two great friends who were able to do that work for me They've already done it so 28 quid all the questionnaires of the men captured at arnhem and it's called captured at arnhem by pen and sword Fabulous. Thank you so much for joining us, Peter. And make sure to head to our bookshop to grab yourself a copy of Peter's book. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 